Well, good morning. I would ask you to take your Bibles and return to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 is our text this morning. God is certainly able. What a great, great promise to keep in mind. Let it anchor our souls. We are going to be uh, continuing this morning, taking our our focus this month on uh, theologically preparing our minds for our ministry push this next next uh, ministry year. And uh, as I've been saying over the past couple weeks, our intended goal is to really challenge you as a challenge us as a body to say, can we engage with the gospel? Can we live life? distinctively as Christians and engaging in all spheres in our relationships and in the community and in the world distinctively as Christians. And my goal has been in this month to to set the table theologically. So two weeks ago, we looked at just Proverbs and we looked at the fact that wisdom is really the truth of God applied and, and fleshed out in real life. And so as we seek to to follow God and fear the Lord and walk in his ways, we are living out His truth, and that's how we engage, by living out His truth in all spheres. Last week, we looked at the fact that our God is a God of engagement. He engaged. In fact, we engage because He engages. And the ultimate way that He engaged was through His Son, Jesus, in saving us. And we just sung of those powerful things that Christ has done to save us. And now that we're saved, we're going to learn what that means for us, believers. What does it mean to be saved? In fact, that's the question I want to lead off with here this morning. I want to just ask you a question to consider. Simple question. It's not a trick question. Simple question, though. What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, it's a big answer to that question. But I want to ask you that question just to kind of get our brains turning. What does it mean to be a Christian? And there's lots of answers to that. Let me just run through just a few Ones that probably would have popped into your mind as you ask, to think about that question. To be a Christian means, first of all, that you've trusted Christ for your salvation, right? Christian, Christ in there, right? I'm going to trust Christ alone. I'm not working my way. I'm not trying to earn my way. I'm not trying to, to, to do things. You know, the wages of sin is death. It's not good works. Therefore, good works can't save me. And so I'm going to trust Christ alone for my salvation. His death was sufficient to pay for my sin. To be a Christian also means the righteousness of Christ has been given to you. So now it's not your righteousness, it's His righteousness. To be a Christian means you've been been made alive by the very Spirit of God. He's indwelt you, given you new life where suddenly you can understand God and desire to serve Him and have your heart changed. And to be a Christian means that I'm going to live for God not only here on, on earth, but when I'm translated into glory, I get to spend all eternity with Him. Right? Those are all great things. Those are all parts of being a Christian. Not to minimize any of those, but I think growing up, my list would have stopped there. I think that's probably where my list would have stopped, you know, as a 25-year-old guy. You know, I would have just defined, that's what it means to be a Christian. But there's one piece that should be added to it, which I'm sure you can figure out what that piece is in light of everything we've been talking about. And it's this, it's, it's, it's a statement like this. To be a Christian means we become part of God's eternal plan for the world. Now think about how big of a statement that is. To be a Christian means that I become 
you become part of God's eternal plan for the world. Now follow my logic here. God created the world, and when He created the world, He created it with a purpose in mind, right? He had, a, he had an agenda, a reason for this creation. When Adam and Eve sinned, and sin was brought into the world, that purpose did not stop. The purposes of God did not suddenly get on pause. God didn't say, well, that purpose is now blown. Adam and Eve really messed that up. I don't know what to do now. I guess we'll just let it play itself out, see what happens. That wasn't God. God's eternal purposes continued on. And as God's eternal purposes continued on, He worked and engaged this world to such a degree that eventually Christ comes into the world and He saves people and dwells them with His Spirit and dwells them with His righteousness. And then they become united to Him. And once you become united to Christ, what do you become united to? The eternal purposes of God. God has a plan for the world. He's carrying out that plan for this world. And we get to be a part of it. Now here's the cool thing about this. God created the world. God had a plan. God created this plan. We sinned. God saved us. He indwelt us with His Spirit. indwelt us with His righteousness. Therefore, it doesn't matter what earthly gifts and talents you have. It doesn't matter what personality traits you have. It doesn't really matter. You can, every one of us can be a part of God's eternal plan because it's His plan, His power, and His person at work in us. That's a good spot for an amen, isn't it? Seriously, really, amen, give me one, right? Yeah, you can get into this. This is good news. It's an exciting thing because suddenly, you know, we have a totally different perspective. The world looks at us and says, well, you better have this, you know, in our culture, right, a Type A personality, an aggressive spirit, a good personality, and you better be able to read Shakespeare and tell funny jokes and do all of this stuff in order to make an impact in this world. And God says, actually, it's not what I need. I need you just to fear me. I need you to love me with my whole heart, your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And my righteousness and my spirit and my power is enough to connect you to my eternal plan for the world. Good news. Today, we're going to see how that plays itself out here in Matthew chapter 5. You're going to get a glimpse of this in this text. And, 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 and hopefully, prayerfully, we'll encourage you to see how this actually is to work. We can talk about it in big pictures, but now we're going to see exactly how God intended for you to be part of his eternal plan through Jesus. We're going to see it here today. Now, we're here, we're, we're looking at a text. Ron read it for us uh, here, right here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And let me just kind of set the context for you for this sermon so that you can understand it and, and to see what's happening. You know, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 records the Sermon of Jesus. And what's interesting about this sermon is that he's laying out the very essence of, of, of what he is bringing to the world. The kingdom of God coming through Jesus. And he's laying out, he's laying out the full theology of it. But what I want you to, to see and, and remember about this is who it is who's actually hearing this sermon. There, there's an audience there. And I want you to get a glimpse as to who this audience is that's listening to the sermon. So if you go to Matthew 
chapter 4, starting in verse 23, you begin to see the audience of the sermon. Look at what it says. It's following. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is preaching, his fame is spreading, and the people are coming and bringing out all these really sick hurting, possessed people. Now, mind you, those groups of people that are listed there, that entire list of people, were all a group of people that the religious elite would have ignored. They would have said they are unclean. Many of them would have said they are unclean because they obviously did something to deserve that. They deserve to be unclean. They deserve to be, you know, they must have sinned and God is judging them now and because their judgment is upon them, We're going to stay away from that. So these people are coming out. Their family members are bringing them out. Jesus is healing them. I'm picturing hundreds, maybe thousands of the outcasts of society. They've gathered to such a degree that at the beginning of chapter 5, it says, seeing the great crowds, he went up on a mountain and he sat down with his disciples and he started talking. And what does he say to them? Picture these people who haven't been in a synagogue or in a temple for years. Picture these people who have been told, this sickness is because you're a sinner. This sickness is because God is cursing you. This sickness is because you're being judged. You know, you're not worthy to be in the presence of God. And these people come out and Jesus says, I'm going to touch you, I'm going to heal you, and then I'm going to say to you, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you right now. Guess what? You get the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who have been weeping and mourning for years. I'm going to comfort you. Right? He's pronouncing a blessing upon them. This is a wonderful, 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 glorious moment where he's saying, you who are in desperate need of the kingdom of God are going to get it. You're going to be lifted up right now. You will be recipients of this kingdom. But not only will you be recipients of this kingdom, but two things are going to happen. You're going to get the kingdom of God, and you're going to get the healing of the kingdom of God, and you're going to get the the comfort of the kingdom of God, and you're going to get the joy of the kingdom of God. It's all coming to you. But not only that, two things will happen. And we're going to see it today. He says, you will also be... A preserving, you will have a preserving impact in this world. And you will have a revealing influence. You're going to have an impact and an influence. You, who were set aside, are now my tools. The very tools of God Himself to carry out the kingdom purposes of God in this world. Let's see how this happens. Let's look at this text here. Let's look at the first thing he says in 13. He tells them, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, 
How will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, what is the most striking about this statement is that very first word. You. It's it's an amazing statement to think about this. He doesn't stand there and say, I am the salt of the earth. I am the light of the world. He is the salt of the earth, right? It's Jesus, right? He is the light of the world. Jesus. Yet he says, he doesn't stand there and say, I am this, I am this. He says, no, no, no. Not only is the kingdom of God going to be revealed to you, not only will you have the comfort and the care and everything, but you will now be salt. And you will now be light. Our union to Jesus connects us to the very eternal purposes of God in this world. And the people who are hearing this were not the movers and shakers of society. They were those who had nothing to offer the kingdom of God but faith and dependence. That's it. And he says, you guys, the salt of the earth. It's a powerful metaphor, salt. And I think the people would have understood what it means. I think we understand what it means. But just... Just to kind of unpack it for a moment, let's just think about salt. There were basically, I think, four layers to the understanding of salt. We would understand this, and I think it's all embedded in this definition of calling them salt. But, but just think about these four things that, that make up salt, right? Salt is, first of all, a preservative, right? In that day, especially a day we don't have refrigeration, you, you know, you cut up your meat, you cook it, it's going to go bad quickly. Unless you rub salt in it. You rub salt in it, you cure the meat. What does it do? It, it, it slows down the rate of decay. So people understood salt was a very important thing. It slows decay down. What else does salt do? It's an enhancer, right? It enhances flavor. It makes something better. It, it really does, right? I mean, you know, we don't want to just pass out potatoes here. Right? Here are a bunch of potatoes. Eat them. You just be coughing all day. You put a little salt on it, suddenly a potato's good. Right? That's what salt does. It, it brings out the flavor. If you've never tried salt on a potato, you should, by the way. So, some of you are looking at me like, no, I, so it makes me wonder, have, who has put salt on their potatoes? I just need to, okay, good. Some of those looks were either that's just a really dumb illustration, or I've never put salt on my potatoes. So now I just know it's a dumb illustration, strike that one. Okay, take it off the notes. Salt is also a disinfectant, right? Salt water, you put it on, clean out a wound. You go in the hospital, what do they do? They hook you up to salt water. It's a very important medical thing. And salt is also a theological concept. They would have picked up on this, I believe, in, the old, in, in Jesus' day. You might not have picked up on this. But in uh, Numbers chapter 18, Moses is talking to the priests. And he's telling them all about the Old Covenant. And he says, the old covenant, or he doesn't use the old covenant, but he says, this covenant with God, he says, is a covenant of salt. That's the term, comes up a few times in the Old Testament, covenant of salt, meaning it is a preserving, uh, uh, powerful, enhancing covenant that God is going to bring to change your life. And so you have all of these pictures in, with salt, and he's saying, you... I've taken you and I've not only revealed the very power of the kingdom of God in you, Jesus is saying, 
But now I'm actually going to place you in this world where you can impact the world where you are. Now you might think, how can you do this? I mean, you might think, well, you know, those that, that have the really upfront personalities, they can do it. I mean, they can teach, they can, they can tell jokes, they can do this. They... What about me? I can't do any of that. But Jesus did not say, listen, I'm going to do this through, my, through a, a certain personality type. He's saying, it's actually a completely different process. If we were to study, and we're going to look at this a little bit in a few minutes, but just to kind of, kind of introduce the thought. If you read through the, all of the Sermon on the Mount, what is the Sermon on the Mount saying? Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, listen, my righteousness is going to come into your life and it's going to change your life. It's going to change the way you respond to this world. It really is. It's going to change your response to this world. And when you begin to respond through the righteousness of Jesus, it actually has a positive impact in the world. I worked with a man, I've referenced him before, when I worked in the public schools, a Christian teacher, really incredible, godly man. And there was a time in, in a staff meeting when things were getting kind of tense. And, uh, and people were not happy with the administration. They'd come down with some decision and, and things were starting to unravel in, in the room. And anger started to, to surface. And this man stood up and talked. And his words were brought healing. He calmed the room down. He got everybody to think wisely. The decisions of the administration were just as much impacting him in the negative as it was everyone else. But he didn't stand there and say, workers unite! Let's take down the administration! He didn't do that. He stood up and spoke words of peace. What did he do? He slowed the rate of decay. He was rubbing salt in the meat here, saying, let's just be wise. You know what he was? He was the salt of the earth at that moment. His words in the workplace slowed the rate of decay, brought healing to people, brought comfort. Why? He just responded as I believe Christ would have responded. Christ wouldn't have agitated the situation. He would have brought comfort to the situation. That's what he did. This is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you guys, by my righteousness fleshing itself through your changed heart, when you don't respond to this world in kind, it will absolutely have an impact in the world. Now, we'll unpack that in a little bit even more. But notice there's a warning in this passage, though. There's a warning. What's the warning? He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, salt, right? If you're a scientist, you'd say, well, wait a minute, salt can't stop being salt. So how does it lose its saltiness? Salt? Well, if you think about it, it's just more of a, it's a pretty simple statement. Uh, and that day, if you were to gather salt up, you go out to a place with a bunch of salt, you gather it up, you're going to be picking it up, and it's going to be loaded with dirt and rocks and pebbles. And so you sift it. And when you sift the dirt and the rock and the pebbles out, you get the pure salt. Well, if you didn't sift it well enough, you're eating dirt, right? I mean, no one wants to put dirty salt on their potatoes. You don't want to do that. 
Why? You won't taste the salt. It won't do any good. It's worthless. If I were to put a salt shaker on the table, three quarters dirt, one quarter salt, what would you do with it? If I gave it to you as a housewarming present, what would you do with it? You would throw it away. You would say there is absolutely no use for dirty salt. Period. It's an obvious point, isn't it? But here's his point. Now, we're not just talking about salt. He's talking about us. How about humans? What happens if other loves other than the love of Christ begin to take over my heart? What happens if I love Christ and the world? I love Christ and my freedom. I love Christ and my money. I love Christ and my independence. I love Christ and whatever, dot, dot, dot. What happens? The image, the picture Jesus is painting is, his salt will always be salt. The question is, is our flesh being sifted out? And he says, if if the reality is that you love the world and you love me at the same time, you're worthless. It's a powerful statement. It's a very strong statement. Your only worth is to be cast away. So Jesus is saying this idea of being salt is not optional. It's, It's absolutely not optional. Could you imagine a surgeon who says, I want to be a surgeon, but I really don't like scalpels. And so I would like to be a surgeon, get paid as a surgeon, charge you as a surgeon, but I'm actually never going to cut you open. You would say, I'm not going to pay you. Call up a plumber to fix your house. Well, I actually don't like water. I don't like getting my hands wet. I hate pipes. That pipe dope gets on my fingers. It gets all sticky. So I'm just going to come in, charge you 60 bucks an hour to sit in your house. Would you do it? No. Jesus is saying you are the salt of the earth. And if this doesn't appeal to you, be gone. Powerful. It's harsh, isn't it? You are the salt of the earth. And if other loves own your heart, then the only worth is to be trampled underfoot. Saltiness is not an option. It's part and parcel. That's the warning. So how do we do this? We do this when we say, Jesus, man, I I, want to know you. I want to love you. I want to I want to absolutely have you as my only love of my life. That's it. And I got to thinking about this a little bit and I got to thinking, you know, we could actually then thank God for the problems we have in our life. Because it seems to me, at least in my life, my problems are what drive me to Jesus. If I had like one year without a problem, could you imagine that? One year without an ache or pain, one year without a health issue, one year without a problem. I mean, seriously, everything you do works. Bank sends you a note and says, by the way, turns out we owe you $400,000. We're putting it in your account. Sorry. Mortgage people come and say, you know what? Forget it. Just keep the house. Here's the deed. Like one year like that. Could you imagine that? How much would you pray? 
I don't know. I, we could be honest, right? Just between us and the 50,000 people on the internet listening. We wouldn't pray a lot, would we? It would be tempting not to pray. And so sometimes I think the very thing that God gives us to sift the dirt out so we would remain salty is the very thing we resist. And we resist that. We push against it. But the point is this. Saltiness is not an option. It's not an option. You are it. When that kingdom comes upon you, you are now the salt. But not only that, not only to have this kind of preserving impact, he also says you're going to have a revealing influence. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Second metaphor is light. Pretty simple thing, but again, let's just kind of unpack the picture there. Light, by its very nature, reflects. You don't have to do anything to light, right? If I, if I turn on a light, the light is on, it just reflects. That's just its nature. You light a candle, it is what it is. You, you go and you light a match in a dark room, and it just lights up the room. This is what I'm intending for you to be. I'm intending for you to be light. And in fact, he uses some pictures of it, right? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That is 100% true. You ever gone camping out maybe 40 miles from a city, 40, 50 miles from a city, and you can see in the distance the glow of the city? You know what I'm talking about? If you've gone camping, you know what I'm saying. You know, if you're just within maybe 30, 40, 50 miles of a city, you can see it out in the horizon and say, oh, there's Chicago. I can see it glowing. You can't hide it. And he's saying, when my righteousness is revealing through you, you cannot be hidden, nor have I given you my righteousness to hide. You don't light a lamp to cover it up. That's dumb. You light a lamp to light things up. Jesus is saying, I have given you my righteousness to light you up. I have not given it so that you would, as I say quite often, hide until the rapture. The point isn't, oh my word, the whole world's going on out there. We better get deeper in the commune. And get away, lest they hurt us. Say, how can they hurt you? I've conquered sin and death. I've crushed the serpent's head. Go out and be light. You are the light, he's saying. It's not an option. You are the light of the world. And I didn't light you to hide you. I lit you to shine you. So he says in 16... Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So now he gives us a little bit of, a, of an understanding of, of, of what is shining. He's saying your good works. Now what are the good works that he's talking about? It's pretty clear what they are, especially if we just read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, especially just chapter 5. Christ says, I mean, if I'm just going to summarize chapter 5, he says this. I've called you, I've blessed you, I've brought you the kingdom so that you be salt and light in this world. And I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to actually make it so that you can live in the very intent of the law every day of your life. And here's how I've done that. Rather than just saying, don't steal, my righteousness is going to come and start addressing your greed. And rather than just saying, don't commit adultery, my righteousness is going to come and start dealing with your lust. And rather than saying, uh, uh, don't murder. My righteousness is going to come and start dealing with your anger. 
And as my righteousness starts dealing with those areas of your life, suddenly your anger starts to get under control. Suddenly your lust starts to get under control. Suddenly your greed starts to get under control. And suddenly now, when the administration is coming against all these teachers, a Christian teacher can stand up and respond in gracious mercy and love. Rather than workers unite, let's take down the principle. He can have a preserving, reflecting influence at that moment. Why? He's not getting angry now. He's not defending himself. He's saying, I want to do what's right. I want to be a peacemaker at this moment. Not a troublemaker. That's what happens. But it comes only when we trust seek to follow Jesus. You know, there's an interesting study that was done. A pastor, it's an informal study, there was a pastor speaking at a, uh, it was called a Christian Ministries Leadership Conference. So at this conference were, like, principals of Christian universities, um, heads of, like, Christian hospitals, anybody who had a leadership position over a a, a, a religious institution somewhere, and uh, and there was several thousand people attending this meeting. And this pastor stood up, and what he did is he gave everybody a card that had a survey on it. And what he did is he read a bunch of accounts of the life of Jesus. Went through and read, you know, here's what happened in this account. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. It was healing accounts and miracle accounts and conversations he had with people, times when Jesus was confronting people, all kinds of things. And what he did in each one of those accounts, every time he'd read accounts, he'd say, which character do you identify with the most in this story? Interesting question, isn't it? Which character do you identify with most in this story? Several thousand people in the room, he said it was only one out of every hundred that identified with Jesus. Now, at face value, you might think it's wrong to identify with Jesus, right? Like, like he's the one that is supposed to confront people, or he's the one who does this, and I can't do that. But then the guy who did this, he said, he basically chastised them all, and he said, you know what? Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. And you're going through your world not even thinking you are connected to him. That your heart should be responding and corresponding to Christ's heart for this world. He said, all of us should have been identifying with Jesus at that moment. Maybe Jesus is doing things that he can only do because he's God. But we should be identifying with the heart and the passion and the concern. If Jesus is getting angry, we should be getting angry. If Jesus is showing compassion, we should be identifying with compassion. He's saying... We're not identifying with Christ. Somehow, he said, in the United States, we've made it appropriate to not identify with Jesus and still call ourselves a Christian. It was an interesting thing that I read, and I thought about that, and I wanted to share that because I was thinking, you know, there's something to that. And I wonder how much dirt we've allowed to mix in with our salt to where we suddenly start saying, Jesus is enough to get me into heaven, and then... And, and to help me when I can't help myself. But other than that, I'm kind of just doing my thing. 
I'm not really identifying with Christ. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not actually having, looking and recognizing a changed nature and a, a changed heart. So I think if you looked at the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is saying is, when, I, when you are united with me and I bring my righteousness into you, that will change the essence of who you are. And when that changes the essence of who you are, you will be salt and light in this world. So we don't have to start a big missions movement. We don't have to start an organization. We don't have to do any of this kind of stuff. What we have to do is say, Jesus, you're everything. I want you to be everything. And any dirt that, is, that has gotten in the way, any other love other than you, deal with it. Deal with it. And when that becomes the actual pursuit of our life, our nature changes. And a changed nature is salt and light. It has an impact and an influence in the world. So, let's wrap this up. I remember uh, 25 years ago, I don't know when it was, somewhere in the 80s, 1980s, there was a Christian musician, a very popular Christian musician, who decided that they wanted to go secular and, like, you know, just put secular albums out and all this stuff. And it created a lot of, you know, controversy over the, the path that this artist went to try to start a secular career. And, uh, and there was all this tension and a lot of people were writing a lot about it. And there was an interview with this artist in Rolling Stone and I read the interview. And, uh, and the artist said this, I wish everybody would quit looking at me. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean they should all be looking at me. And with all due respect, being a Christian is having people look at you. That's what God designed. God said, I'm going to change you so that you would be my agent, my preserving agent and my revealing agent in this world. So that you would be salt and light. I want to put you on a hill so that everybody can see you. I've lit you up with my love and my righteousness so that all would see and savor me. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I want to change you so that people would see this and you would impact this world, become part of the eternal plan of the Father so that more and more people would be connected to Christ and more and more people be united in Him and His eternal purpose of uniting everything in Jesus until the final consummation of the ages and Christ is standing there, the center of the universe, and every knee is bowing to Him, comes to fruition. That eternal plan, God has said, you're the salt, you're the light, it's not an option. So how do we do this? Let me just give you some things to think about. Three things. Uh, first one is, is pretty clear, I think, right? We've really got to deal honestly with our sin, with our heart. We, we're never going to get anywhere until we acknowledge where the dirt is mixed in with the salt, right? It's just the reality of it. We've got to just, we've got to, we've got to get that dirt out. We've got to say, okay, there are other loves in my life. We can be honest about that. There are other, li- uh, other loves in our life. The great thing about dealing with those other loves is that we deal with them with a compassionate, caring Father. And a Savior who says, you confess it, now cleanse it, man. Don't worry. This isn't a threat. This is a great thing. You can clean house. 
I think that's the first thing. The second thing is really to see Jesus in His glory and is in His responses in this world. It's an interesting thing, and I won't make this long, but I was thinking about growing up, and I was thinking about how how my relationship with my parents changed over the years. When I was younger, my relationship with my parents was basically like, I need this from you, give it to me now, right? I mean, it started when they were younger, when I was younger, and, uh, you know, and we're at a store, and, hey, can I have a candy bar? Can I have this? Can we have that? Can we get ice cream? Right, on and on, all the questions. Can I stay up late? Can we watch this? Can we go here? Can we go there? My entire relationship was this, like, service thing. I just, I just want something from you. And, of course, they spent a lot of time saying, no, 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 no. I want to go to the store. Can I have some money? No. Then I grew up. And I have my own children. Kind of weird, though, because my own children come over and I start handing them $20 bills. Okay, where was that 20 when I was that age? But anyway, that's another, another issue. But suddenly, when I go back home, I don't go home saying, hey, can we get ice cream? I just want to be with my parents. I just want them. When I was six, I wanted the ice cream. And when I was 26, I wanted them. That same maturity, I think, has to happen in our Christian life. A sign of spiritual immaturity is that Jesus is a source of constantly needing to give you things. To growing up to the point where you say, I just want Him. I just love Him. And then I want to start doing what He does. And so then as I got older, I started calling my dad. Dad, my water heater broke. What do I do? Here's what you do. And he tells you. I just want to do how you would do it. And it's the same thing with Jesus. I think we've got to push ourselves to, to say, to be honest and say, am I treating Jesus like I treated my parents when I was six? Or like when I was 26? I just want to be with them. And I want to do what they do. And so I want to savor Jesus in his glory. And I want to read his gospels to see how he responds. So that I can say, Jesus, I just want to do that. Jesus, I'm facing an angry boss right now. How would you respond? Fashion that in me, Jesus. I just want to be with you. I want to respond like you. And I think the third thing is praying for his eyes. Let me see the world through your eyes. As I've shared with you in the past, I was grounded one time and I had a bunch of chores I had to do for the grounding. And the way my parents grounded me, here's a little grounding tip for you parents. Uh, kids, sorry, but here's the tip. When I was grounded, and I did lots of things deserved to be grounded, and this was, so one of them was, you had grounded for seven days, and each day you had to do work. And if you accomplished that work to the satisfaction of my dad, the day counted. If you didn't do the work to the satisfaction of my dad, the day didn't count. So it was seven days based upon his approval of the work at the end of the day. And at 10, I still never got that. And I still pushed all the work to the end of the day. And one day I did all the work lousy because I did the last 15 minutes before he came home. And he walked through and he looked at all the yard work I was supposed to do. And he said, today doesn't count. 
Tomorrow I want you to do this work with my eyes, not yours. And he walked in. And I think I want to live the world saying, God, show me the world through your eyes, not my eyes. Your eyes. I want to be salt. I want to be light. This is our intended purpose, but it only comes when Jesus is everything. So why don't we pray for that now? Why don't you bow your head? Let's bring our hearts before the Lord and just pray that Jesus would fill us with a mature passion for him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege we have to be coming before you because of what Jesus has done for us. I thank you for your compassion, your tenderness. There is dirt mixed with our salt. Our hearts are not perfectly stayed upon you. You're not everything to us. And so, Lord, may we be honest about that together. And may we bring that before your your forgiveness and your compassion. Fill us with a mature love for you that we might love you with all that we have. Lord, Lord, just move us from, from an immature love of you that just says, I want, I want, I want, to a mature love that says, I just want to be with you. I just want to know what you would do here. I just want you to guide me. Father, may we see this world through your eyes. May we engage it as salt and light. Remind us daily it's not an option. It's not an option. So may may it consume us. And that we might find the joy and the fulfillment in you. Thank you that that's where it comes from. Thank you that it doesn't come from money. Thank you that it doesn't come from 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 relationships, from intimacy. Thank you that it doesn't come from from people understanding us. Thank you that it doesn't come from always getting our way. Thank you that it comes from being in you because you will never betray us. You will never leave us. You will never hurt us. May we find our satisfaction in the purposes for which you created us. And may you shine the light of your gospel through all of us as we leave here salty with bright lights seeking to shine forth our changed heart before the world. I pray for all of us in this as we journey on this together. In Christ's name, amen.